what a difference a week makes. Last week, this room was in the set at the same temperature as it is today. Yet, it seemed cold. Today, I don't know about you, but it seems kind of warm in here. We're now in the midst of Paul's first missionary journey. Last week, we saw him now begin to be the focus of missionary activity. We'll also see in this chapter how he and Barnabas will turn from going to the Jews first to seeking the Gentiles, which also corresponds with the dropping of his Hebrew name of Saul and the then now going with his Roman name of Paul. Now from these journeys of the apostle, the gospel will spread out and, and go into areas that will impact every single one of our heritages, places we come from, from our, our family trees. And of course then, from there it will come here uh, to America. So all that happens in here affects what's happened here. Before us today in these verses is the first recorded sermon of Paul. Yes, he's already been preaching, he did so in chapter 9 and in a couple other places, but here is our first look of what probably was the form of the sermon that he would use and preach in the synagogues where he was allowed to address. This is a lengthy passage. I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. Verse 13 and then on to verse 41. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos. They came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now this is just mentioned in passing, but this would be a, an event that, that causes a disruption between Paul and Barnabas because John, John Mark is the one that Paul would say deserted them and so when Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him again, Paul said no. And they ended up going their separate ways. But when they departed from Perga and came to Antioch of Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers 
and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time, about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And after John, in reference to John the Baptist, had preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think that I am? I am not he. And behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath have fulfilled them in condemning him. They fulfilled the, the writings of the prophets. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings. That promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. 
Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophet come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I will work in your days a work which you will by no means believe, though one will declare it to you. The Lord, in this lengthy passage, help us to glean from this that which truly brings honor unto thy name, light to thy people, glory to Christ through the work of the Spirit. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. We see in verse 15 of chapter 13 that they, Paul and Barnabas, were invited to speak. If you have a word of exhortation, they said, say on. It must have been, for all intents and purposes, a tense time. They are invited to speak, so it's clear that they're known to some degree. And in that building are some who are eager to hear, while there are others who are angry at their being able to speak. So in verse 16, we see that Paul takes the lead. He stands. He motions to the people. He knows that in this place are both Jews and also Gentile converts. For he addresses them, men of Israel, which means he's speaking to the Jews. And then, and you who fear God are the Gentile converts. Now what follows, his sermon is very similar to Peter's sermon after Pentecost. And very, very much to see some parallel things which Stephen uh, preached. Why do we see that? Well, because... Truth is truth, and it's the same Holy Spirit at work. It's like Peter's sermon in that he uses the same quotation of Psalm 16, verse 10. It's like Stephen's in that Paul also gives an overview of, of Israel's history as God's covenant people. But while Stephen stressed their lack of obedience particularly to their leaders, the deliverers that God raised up to them, Paul will focus on God's grace towards Israel. And there's three sections of the sermon. They run verses 16 through 25, and then verses 26 through 37, and verses 38 through 41. Every time we, we into, he introduces a new section, if you will, he speaks men and brethren. And as we look through this, we see three things take place. First, he describes God's grace in the distant past. He then gives God's grace in the recent past. And then God's grace in the present. Now for many, the idea of God's grace in the Old Testament seems like a foreign notion. 
But if you really truly read the Old Testament as it should be read, you will be amazed at the grace and mercy and patience of God. Grace, many people think, is a New Testament concept. And while we often leave off the Old Testament in a presentation of the gospel here, especially since Paul is facing a, a largely Jewish group, he begins with the Old Testament, which makes sense because, let's face it, he didn't have an Old Testament, a New Testament to work with. It's still in development. But he is also showing that the purpose of the Old Testament is not just to give us some kind of Hebrew history. Oh, this is the history of the Jews. Isn't this nice? That's not what it's there for. And Jesus makes it clear. You read the scriptures, you search the scriptures. Why? Because in them you think you'll find salvation. And you will. Why? Because they testify of me. Now, we've brought this point up any number of times, but for so many over the years, so many have grown up with the idea that, oh, the Old Testament's about the Jews, the New Testament's about Christians. And that's just not the case. Yes, we have two Testaments, but one Bible. And I think it's a good and useful thing to follow the pattern that he gives and the development as it gives the, the bigger picture. So let's look first at God's grace in the distant past. Again, let us be clear. Paul is giving a gospel presentation. And those of you who were with us last Sunday afternoon when we made clear delineations between the law and the gospel and how confused some people get and how, how silly it is for some to say, oh, no, it's all law. And so you shouldn't separate the two. Well, that's to go against the pattern. And by the way, no one's saved by the law. The only place you can find salvation is in the gospel. And so the first point of grace and that is the undeserved favor of God. We find in verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. He chose and exalted a people. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God through Moses makes clear, he did not choose Israel because they were great. The Jews were not deserving of being chosen by God to be his special people. They weren't great in number. They were not great in character. But what was the reason? 
But the Lord loved you because he would keep the oath that he swore to your fathers. He didn't choose them because they were choice. The Lord loved you because of the oath that he had given, not because there was something in you, and that translates to we understand. He elected these people. He elects his people not because of some great quality that they have in them or some great need that the church may have, but it's purely out of his love. It's an amazing thing. People can read scripture and they say, I don't agree with the concept of God electing, of God choosing. And the first thing I want to say when I hear something like that is, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Why go there? What do we have? We have the account of creation. Every single element of salvation is a choice by God. It wasn't that. There was a whole panoply of things that were put before him. It said, these are the things that have to go out. These are the things you have to make. Not at all. Every single part of creation is a choice of God. Have you thought of that? Even fire ants, God chose somehow to have those little critters running around. Why did he create fire ants, by the way? So the people who make insecticides will have something to do. Creation proves that God is a choosing God. Choices that he made within himself. He made a choice of creatures. What would they look like? And from all his creatures, he made a choice. He didn't choose orangutans to reveal himself to. He didn't choose cows. He chose man. Right from the beginning, God chooses. He chooses and chooses and chooses. And so out of the whole group of mankind, he chose a particular group to be his. And just as in creation the choices were made before the world was created and before any creature had done anything good or bad, so it was that God made his choices of who it is he would call to himself. And when Israel was in Egyptian bondage, he brought them out of it. They didn't work their way out of it. He brought them out of it. That's a picture of deliverance, a portrait of salvation. In the bondage of sin, we are released. We are delivered by a deliverer. Who was the deliverer for, for the Israelites at that point? It was Moses. Moses was a type of Christ. We have that typology that runs through all the Old Testament. In verse 9, it says that God, when he had destroyed, he had destroyed seven nations. And then we continue on. He distributed their land to them 
by allotment. So verse 19, he destroyed, he distributed. Verse 20, he gave. Verse 21, he gave. Verse 22, he removed. And then he raised up. And so from here, he moves to the near past and the present. But just as we read verse 18 now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. That's mercy. That's grace. He should have zapped them the first bit of complaint and grumbling that they had when they, they thought, oh, well, we've, we cried out, God delivered us, and now we're out for three or four days, and we missed the cucumbers that were so good there in Egypt. And they groaned against the God who delivered them from the very bondage that they cried out to be delivered from. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And after them, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And after that, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he removed Saul. He raised up for them David as king. To whom also he gave testimony and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. Now see the connection that Paul is making. He's bringing up to a, the near past. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior. God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. It's almost a little play on words, but he wants them to make sure that he knows who that Savior is that was raised up. A Savior, a Soter, we get soteriology from that idea. A Savior, Jesus. Jesus means God is Savior. So you, you see, he makes that connection for them, for them to see. It is from a promise that had its beginning in Genesis chapter 3 to the recent fulfillment of that promise as well. The promise was also made to David that he would never lack a son to be on the throne. He made that to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. It's repeated again in Psalm 89 and verses 35 through 37. And he continues on. Verse 24. Verse 25. And after John first preached, before his coming, before the coming of Christ, the baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. John was finishing his course. He said, who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Isn't that interesting? He gets to John the Baptist. Now, it would be easy for us to say, well, John the Baptist, he's a pretty obscure character, isn't he? he? He was over there around Jerusalem and in that area and he was baptizing. Who's going to know about 
They knew about him. That's why Paul doesn't have to say, oh, by the way, I'm referring to John the Baptist who, who spent some time before Jesus as the forerunner. He doesn't have to spend that time introducing him. The people knew who he was. And he's building off of that. And that brings us into a second section where he begins again by saying men and brethren, verse 26, He's going to get to the point. He says, this is more than just a history lesson. This message has been sent to you. Same thing today. This message is sent to you. So verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, to those among you who fear God, to you the word of salvation has been sent. Now he's going to make a little contrast here. It's being brought to you. Now here's what happened previous, especially in Jerusalem. Verse 27, for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled what the prophet said in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death, the rulers and people of the Jews should have recognized Jesus. They should have received him. But instead... Instead, they became his prosecutors, his persecutors, and his executioners. But execution is too good a word because they murdered him. Wasn't that a harsh word? Not at all. Why do we call it murder? Because it's clearly said here. They found no cause of death in him, but they went ahead and had him killed anyway. No guilt worthy of death. And they didn't know him, even though they had the words of the prophet. Peter will make the same point in Acts chapter 3 in verses 17 through 18. They had this information. They didn't receive it. It's interesting that in this voice, in this verse that is, that he speaks in verse 27 of the voices of the prophets, the voices of them. As often happens today, people will hear the words of the gospel spoken to them, but they don't hear the voice of the Lord. And so as these people sat in the synagogues and in the temple and they heard the words of the prophets being read to them every Sabbath day, all they heard was they didn't hear the voice of God. They didn't hear what God was saying to them through the prophets. Their hearts hardened. And many today hear of Christ 
And many will say, oh, he's a good man. He was a, but he was a man. That's the, that's the thing. You talk to so many people. If they, if you want to believe that there was a Jesus, but he's a man. He's just a man. There's more to it than that. Far more. To reject Christ is to reject God, the Father. If you have the Son, you have the Father. But if you don't have the Son, guess what? Then you don't have the Father either. He is the one who has the keys to death and hell. No, this is not any just a guy, just a man. Verse 29 when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Fulfilling all the Old Testament writing about him. They took him down, they laid him in a tomb, but notice here it's the gospel again. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. God raised him. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you the glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. Here's gospel. God has fulfilled this for us, their children. In that what? More gospel. He has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now to verse 34, just in case you missed it the first two times. And that God raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has thus spoken, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Three times in three verses, God raised him from the dead. And in verse 34 through 37, They raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. You know that psalm because we have recited it and sung it. For David, after he'd served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. What do we have in verse 37? But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So in verse 38, he comes to this conclusion, beginning with therefore in that verse, in light of what everything has been said before us, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and that by him, by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And so verse 39 tells him about the hopelessness of the law. Now the law is perfect. The law is beautiful. The law has God as its author, so it is right. And it, it gives us a, a sense of the righteousness of God. But the law is not designed to save. It never was. That's not the purpose. It is first and foremost to condemn. 
And after it's done that work and pointed us, sent us to where we need to find salvation and redemption, it becomes a guide for us. It's the first use of the law is to condemn. The second is, is civil. For just a good society works off the... I mean, what can, well, how can you have a bad society off the Ten Commandments? And then the third use is for believers. It guides us. It's our friend. It, it tells us which way we are, are to go. And so you have the hopelessness of the law contrasted with the good news of the gospel. By him, everyone who believes is justified. By him comes justification. Well, it says, but yeah, but we, it says who, who, everyone who believes gets justified. Yes, by him. Belief is a response. But the gospel is through him and only through him comes justification. And by the way, I don't know how much time I've spent here, but that's all right. I'll share something that just drives me up a wall. And people say, oh, you know, that word justified. Justified. Just as if I hadn't said, oh, please don't do that. Oh, it sounds so cute. Yeah, it sounds cute, but there's a lot of things that look cute. It's not just as if I hadn't sinned. If it was, then we wouldn't need Christ's righteousness over us. But because I have sinned, I have to have the righteousness of Christ on me and over me so that when the Father looks at me, he sees the righteousness of his Son because he still couldn't look at me because I'm still a forgiven sinner. And that's it. That's it. Verse 41, God says, I will work a work. Gospel, again. By him comes justification, a right standing before God. God says, it's because I will work a work. And the gospel will always be what God has done. Every rescue, every deliverance, every deliverer in the Old Testament pointed to the great and final deliverance and the great deliverer. And as we have seen, the Old Testament's not devoid of God's grace. In fact, God's grace constantly appears. And grace begins, grace begun, becomes grace completed. Don't read your Old Testament like it's just Hebrew history. Read it as the beginning of the history of redemption. The book that first speaks of Christ, even before the New Testament. A book where he is to be found everywhere. But remember, the old needs the new. For in the new, the old is revealed. 
the old prophets, Old Testament prophets, didn't understand all that they prophesied and longed to know the things that the New Testament made clear. You know, sometimes we, we read those prophecies and we think, well, boy, Isaiah, just must he must have really had a great time. I'm sure he did because God was inspiring him and causing him to write. And he had a glimpse of what it was, but he didn't fully understand what he was writing. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 and verse 10, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. This Jesus, where there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, either Old Testament or New, not a mere man, sure, became fully human, but he was fully God, and he accomplished and fulfilled all that was needed for the redemptive history that began with the fall of man and ends with the return of Christ. Let's stand together for prayer.